The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. So good to see you this morning. What an awesome day. I could wake up this morning and I could see the mountains on my way to work. Hallelujah. It was an awesome day. Hey, we're really glad you're worshiping with us. I want to welcome those of you that are here in the sanctuary. I know we have a collection of folks outside right now in the overflow. And I know we've got a lot of folks that are tuning in online. We're really glad that we can gather together as uh, the church, as this local church on this Sunday. And we can study God's Word and, and grow together. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are starting a brand new series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this, this series is going to last us uh, uh, quite a while. It's going to last us about 20 or 30, 38 weeks. And, and, and if you look, if you, when you came in, we had this, these, these Mark uh, Bible journals. There, there's some outside on a, on a table. If you haven't grabbed one, make sure you grab one. And, and this is the whole entire Gospel of Mark that we're going to be preaching over the next 38 weeks. And inside each of these journals is we have a bookmark for you. And on that bookmark is a list of this, the biblical text that's going to be preached on which weekend it's going to be preached. So you then, as you're preparing for what God is gonna, doing here at Heritage, you can, you can read ahead. You can have a list. Of, you know what text we're going to be preaching. You can do a little homework and see if you agree with how the pastor handles the text and all that sort of stuff. So we encourage you to grab this. And when you come on a Sunday morning, I mean, bring this and bring a pen and take your notes for the text that's being preached in the journal or use it as a part of your devotional life and, and journal on the, in the journal that, that we're providing for you. It's a great tool. We're calling the series a Son of God, Suffering Servant. And we've been spending a lot of time preparing for this, this series. Been, been spending a ton of time in the Gospel of Mark going back to last spring. And I'm excited. I'm excited for us as a church to journey through this, this New Testament book because I think God has some really awesome things to say to us. As we, as we think about what it means for us to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we get to look at this Gospel. We get to look at Jesus every week as we, as we uh, look at Him and then look at our own lives and, and evaluate our journey with the Lord and and how we are, where we are, what it looks like for us on our journey of discipleship. Amen? Hey, I also want to affirm some of the things that, that Aaron shared. You know, there's a lot of uh, new things that we're kind of unveiling here this morning. And listen, our, our only hope in all of this is just to create a space and a place for you to grow as a disciple of Jesus. So all the, all this, the new series, the reason we chose the gospel of, of Mark, the, the, the app that we have provided, uh, the Discover Heritage that's going to be right afterwards for people who are newer to our church, the huddle groups and the men's and women's ministry groups and, and the, the discipleship communities, the reason we gather on Sunday, all of it is just simply we are trying to provide space and opportunity where you can grow in the Lord. You can, you, can, you can seek out after Jesus and figure out who he is if you're, if you're, if you're not yet sure who Jesus is. If you're, if you're someone who's trusted in Christ, we, we're providing all these as just simply tools for you to connect, that you might grow more and more in the likeness of Jesus so that we can continue to become a church of disciples who make disciples. All right, enough of that. Let me pray for us and let's get into our sermon this morning. Oh, Father, I am so very thankful for the men and the women that you have gathered in this place today. God, I'm thankful for the way you have guided our church uh, for 12 plus years. God, I'm thankful for the men and women that are here this morning or tuning in online that are gathered together as we gather as a local body in Medford, Oregon for such a time as this. God, as we open up the book of Mark, God, as we, as we put our hand to studying this book and, and worshiping you and, and, and seek to know you more, God, would you, would you meet us in a powerful way? God, meet us individually, meet us as families, but God, meet us collectively as Heritage Christian Fellowship, God. Mold our church, grow our church, sanctify our church, God. Move in our midst. 
that we might be a church that, that honors you, that glorifies you, a church of disciples who raise up and send out disciples for your glory. God, we love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my wife is what you would call a runner. I am someone who runs. There's a difference. My wife can't wait to put her shoes on, can't wait to get on the trail. She says she like feels God's pleasure when she runs. She's happy when she runs. I hate running. I put my shoes on and I run, but I have great pleasure eating the cheeseburger afterwards. And I run so that I can eat the cheeseburger. That's the relationship that Becky and I have. About 10 or 12 years ago, she just said she was going to run a marathon. And I was thinking about it just because I was getting a little thicker than I wanted to be. And I told my wife I was going to run a marathon with her, and she laughed at me. So out of spite, I trained and ran a marathon with her. And uh, we we completed it. It was great. We ran a couple marathons since. And I haven't really ran for about the last five or six years. And uh, so about a month ago, my wife sent me a text. Hey, we just signed, uh, signed up for a half marathon. I'm like, great. Awesome, we signed up for half marathon. I'm so happy about that. And uh, so we've been running, we've been training. And so this week, this was supposed to be on, on Friday, we had our longest run of our training uh, regiment. We had to run 12 miles, 12 to 14 miles. I'm like, yeah, we're running 12 miles. I'm not going to go the extra mile. We're going to 12. So we had to run. So we went up to uh, Sterling Mine Ditch Trail. You guys ever been there? It's a beautiful trail outside of town. And, and the problem was the night before we ran, I, I, I lifted weights with my daughter Abigail and I did squats. I haven't done squats for like a decade. And so I did squats and the next morning I couldn't even touch my hamstrings. I was so sore. And then I had to run 12 miles. And my wife was like so excited for this run. I'm like, I don't want to do this run at all. So we get out on the trail and every step I felt like there was concrete in my legs and I was running through quicksand. It was torture. Every step was torture. I hated the entire run. And about three miles in, I told Becky, like, I don't think I can do this, babe. And she's, like, trying to be my motivator. You got this. I'm like, just shut up. <laughs> but we power through it. We get six miles in. We turn around, or six and a half miles in. We turn around. We're running back. And actually, I get a little zone where I'm feeling okay. Uh, and then, like, okay, I'm like, okay, babe, we're going to stop at 12. You cool with that? She's like, oh, whatever. I guess we can stop at 12. And I'm running, and, and she's got this little tracker on her phone. The lady, you have run nine miles. Your pace is forever per mile. You know, that's what it's telling us. And I'm running, and then mile nine comes, and mile 10 comes, and mile 11 comes. And I swear I ran the 12th mile for seven days. It just never <laughs> ended. It was torture. Every step was painful and miserable. I'm like, oh, my gosh, lady in the phone, just tell me when I can stop this madness. It was horrible. And when her voice finally spoke up that I had ran the 12 mile, like I just wanted to collapse and cry, curl up in the fetal position. But we finished our 12 miles. And it was such good news. Like I was waiting for the good news of this lady to tell me I could stop running. And when she told me I could stop, I did. But then as I thought about it, I'm like, that's not really good news. Didn't introduce anything good into my life. It just made the pain stop. And it just, it just sucked a little bit less. It, was, it wasn't good news. And I was like, as I think about what has happened on planet Earth for the last year and a half, I sort of feel like the last 18 months has been that 12th mile. It just feels like I'm just desperate for something. Man, just give me a ray of light. Tell me that the madness is going to stop. Tell me that things are going to get better. I just want good news so bad. And I find myself going back to the, the news apps on my phone, just trying desperately to find some good news. And it just feels like this horrible movie where each new day something more horrible and terrible happens. And I'm just desperate for some good news. I'm desperate for the pain to stop. But COVID and Delta variant and Afghanistan and elections and violence and crime and inflation and housing costs and smoke and drought. I'm just like, oh, is it ever going to end? Aren't we desperate? 
a little bit desperate for some good news as a people? Couldn't we just use some good news? Well, I have some good news about good news. We don't need to wait for some unforeseen headline to lift up our heads. We don't need to look for some positive turn of events that suddenly cast light on the darkness that has been the world for the last 14 months. The good news that I have about good news is that it's been good news for a really long time. There's been good news for a really, really long time, and it's always been there, always. Today, I just get to remind you, and over the next 10 months, as we walk patiently through Mark's gospel, each week we get to remind ourselves, refocus ourselves, renew our spirits, recharge our souls with the greatest news ever. The truth of Jesus is the good news that you need and that I need and the world needs. It is the gospel, and we need it every day. I've got great news for you. I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Today is going to be sort of an introduction into the, the book of Mark, and we're going, to, we're going to work through the first 13 to 15 verses rather quickly. But I want to just sort of, as we're turning to Mark chapter 1, verse 1 in our Bibles, um, I just want to do like a quick overview of what the Bible is. Let's just remind ourselves, what is the Bible? Why do we gather every week and, and teach from this word? Why do we sing songs about this word? Why do we sit under the authority of this word? Why do we gather uh, in the midweek as, as brothers and sisters in Christ and study this word? Because there's no other word like it. The Bible describes itself as being inspired. It means it, this, this book is not just a book written by human hands. It is breathed out by God. The Bible describes itself as being perfectly true, as being absolutely authoritative. The Bible describes itself as being clear. The Bible is like a lamp unto our feet in a darkened world, illuminating the path forward. The Bible describes itself as powerful. The author of Hebrews said that the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible describes itself as being sufficient. Now, though we might desire for the Bible to tell us more than we currently know, the Bible gives us all that we need to know. It's sufficient. The Bible is all about Jesus, whether it was written before him or not. And the Bible is precious. It's the most valuable treasure in the universe. And so we're going to study this book, this book of Mark, for the next 10, week, 10 months. And as we prepare, let's just think about what, let's, again, let's just kind of do Bible 101 overview of the Bible. The Bible is this amazing book, this holy book, this living book that was written over the course of about 1,600 or 1,500 years. It was written in three languages over three continents by some 40 authors. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, some, you know, with the 20, 1450 B.C., something like that. 3,500 years ago. The Apostle John penned the last words of the Bible around 90, 95 AD. And even though it was written by all these people in all these different places, it tells a concise story. And that's amazing because if you look at the authors of the Bible, these 40 different authors, they are for all, they're the most diverse group of people you can imagine. There are priests and prophets that wrote Scripture. There are fishermen and tax collectors that wrote Scripture. There's the uber-wealthy 1% royalty that wrote Scripture, and there are the working class, run of the mill, blue collar, uneducated common folk that wrote Scripture. And yet, it tells one concise story about, about the creation of humankind, about the, about the introduction of sin when mankind rebelled against God and the fall of the human race. It talks about God's uh, a beautiful and amazing plan to redeem all of humankind, and it gives us this hope that one day all things will be consummated and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. It is an incredible story. 
And even though there was all these human authors that penned different books of the Bible, above all of those was one author, a divine author, God himself. As Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, these words in this book are breathed out by God. This is God's word. That's why we call it God's word. As you look at the different books of the Bible, these 66 books that comprise the Bible, they're all different kinds of genre. There's narrative, and there's wisdom literature, and there's poetry, and there's prophecy, and there's gospel, and there's epistle, and there's apocalypse. These different genres of books that are all gathered together to make up this one book, the Holy Bible. We know this. It's divided in two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament is just an old English word for, for covenant, an agreement between two parties. The Old Testament details God's old covenant with the Israelites. The New Testament details the new covenant with the church. So you look at the Old Testament, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. We're not in the Old Testament in this series, but there's 39 books. They tell the story of God's covenant with the Israelite people. The last words of the Old Testament were written about 400 years before Jesus. There was this 400 years of silence, and then around 6 or 5 or 4 B.C., Jesus was born. Prophets began to speak again. And then over a period of about 50 years, the 27 books of the New Testament were written. The Gospels and the Epistles and the Apocalypse. And the New Testament tells us this incredible story about God's new covenant with his people, with the church. The Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, tell us about the life the, 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 the genealogy, the, the, the birth, the life, the ministry, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. The, the, the Bible, the New Testament tells us about, about the ascension of Christ into heaven, about his present reign as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. It tells us about his eventual return one day. It tells us about judgment. It tells us about the eternal state, how things are going to be for all of eternity. The Bible tells us about the doctrines of the church and about future things. And we're in the New Testament. We're one of the Gospels. We're one of the first four books we're going to be studying. We're going to study the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the book Mark, the, the book of Mark that we're studying, it was written by a guy named John Mark. That's why it got its name as Mark. Now, John Mark was a friend of the Apostle Peter. And John Mark recorded the Gospel of Mark after receiving the first-hand witness account of the Apostle Peter. So the Apostle Peter walked with Jesus, saw Jesus do what Jesus did, and then John Mark, his companion, his scribe, wrote down the account of Peter, and that's what we now have is the Gospel of Mark. And that's what we're going to be studying over the next ten months or so. The other four Gospels, or the other three Gospels, kind of tell us different perspectives of Jesus. The first four books of the New Testament all tell us about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus— but they have different portraits. Each author kind of handles it a little bit differently. Mar, or Matthew and Luke, they tend to focus on, at the beginning, the genealogy of Jesus and also kind of the, the early things in his life before he began his ministry. If you go to John's gospel, John is more concerned with giving us a theological foundation for how we're to think of Jesus before he gets into the life of Jesus. But Mark handles it different. Mark tells us uh, just simply about the beginning of Jesus. We know that that John Mark was the, was the author of, of the book of Mark because early church fathers affirm that it's so. And so rather than, than starting with a genealogy or rather than starting with the early life of Jesus or rather than starting with a theology of Jesus, Mark begins right here in chapter 1, verse 1, with the actual beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Let's read the first 15 verses of Mark's gospel. 
The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him, drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. So John begins his, his portrait of Jesus by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning. The beginning of what? In these opening verses, we see the beginning. This is where God intervened in human history. And he, he orchestrated the events of history to unfold. And all of these events that we read about in these first 15 verses, from the appearance of John to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, they form a single movement. The beginning of the gospel. The gospel continues on today, but we see the beginning of the gospel right here with the birth and the ministry of Jesus. The word gospel is a common word. We use it in the church all the time. It simply means good news or joyful tidings. Mark gives us the substance of this good news, this gospel. It's not just any good news. He's not just telling us like, good news about the stock market or good news that the smoke is cleared out. This is good news, and the substance of the good news is Jesus Christ. This good news is all about Jesus. And so the first thing I would encourage you to write down if you're a note taker, and I forgot to send this to, to the team, so this, there's not going to be notes on the screen behind me. But the first thing I'd encourage you to write down is this. This is the gospel of Jesus the King. This is the gospel of Jesus the King. And that's what Mark is saying here in, in the first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Having shown us his hand. Mark's not, he's not, he's not going to wait to reveal what he believes to be true about Jesus to the end. He's going to tell us this from the very beginning. And so for the first eight chapters of this book, Mark is sort of giving us all these stories and all these pictures and depictions so that we might know who Jesus is. And then in chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, there's this pivotal moment. The whole book of, of Mark pivots on these few verses in chapter 8 where, where, where Mark tells us that, that Jesus was talking to his disciples and he asked them, who do you say that I am? So after ministering to the masses, Jesus then turns to those men that were following him and he says, who do you say that I am? And then in the last third of Mark's gospel, we see Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem for that final week of his life, Passion Week, Easter Week. And we see that he is inaugurated as king. He's consummated as king. And we see, we see how Jesus became the king, 
how he became the Christ. And it, not, it wasn't in a way that you normally associate someone who ascends to a place of power. Jesus didn't ride into the city of Jerusalem on a war horse. He rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey in humility. His way to, the, to kingship was through a cross. And so this whole book of Mark, our text today, but really the whole book of Mark, is his argument to support his claim here in verse 1, that the good news, that the gospel, that the world is desperate to know, this truth that the world is desperate to understand, is all about Jesus. And so how do we get the word king from the first? Why did I have you write down that Jesus is king? Well, the word for Christ here, at its most basic level, the, the Greek word means the one who has been anointed. And as you think about uh, the idea of anointing, especially in a Jewish tradition or a Jewish custom, the idea of anointing and kingship go hand in hand. I read this week that within the New Testament, the title Christ or, or Messiah or anointed one is strongly linked to the concept of kingship. It's an association that has a long history in Jewish tradition. If you go to the book of of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, the prophet Samuel went and he anointed Saul, king of Israel. He anointed David, king of Israel, to signify their divine appointment to, to their rule over the Israelites. And so what Mark is saying here, Mark is saying that that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. Not a king, but the king. In the line of David, he's the king of kings. So as Mark writes this, you've got to think about the historical context. What was going on in the world? I mean, the book of Mark was written probably somewhere between the mid-50s or mid-60s um, A.D. And Mark wrote this, this gospel with, with people who didn't know Jewish custom in mind. He wrote it to tell people about, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And So what was going on in the world around 55 A.D.? Well, well Nero was the emperor of Rome. Rome was the most powerful empire the world had ever known. Nero was the most powerful man atop the most powerful empire the world had ever known. Christians were being hunted down and slaughtered in mass. The church was being mercilessly persecuted. People were being forced within the Roman Empire to to look to to Nero or Caesar as, as deity, as a god himself. And in the midst of that backdrop, even as Christians are being persecuted around the world, Mark makes an audacious claim. He's like, no, 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 Nero's not king. Jesus is king. There's one king, and his name is Jesus. And, and, I, and I, I get it. Every year that we go through a political season, every year as I, as I watch the, sort of the horror of current events unfolding before me, it, it seems that, that those men and women who are elected to positions of power, in my estimation, seem to be more incompetent, more out of line with biblical ideas, with the gospel. And my, my level of despair and frustration at my elected officials grows and grows. And it's a, common, it's a common experience for many in the church. And what I've heard sort of as like a last resort, uh, desperate plea, is I've heard Christians over the years say, ugh, we can't forget that Jesus is on the throne. That's true. Jesus is king. He's on the throne. But it seems when I hear Christians say that, it's less of a triumphant proclamation and more of a kind of a, a whisper of despair. It's like, but, 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 what if, but what if all of our, our elected officials were perfect or, or they, they did things exactly as we thought they, they should do and we weren't frustrated with the politics that were going on around us? Would we, would we declare that Jesus is king or would we say, oh, I don't really need Jesus because the kingdom I'm living in is sort of meeting all my needs? Why does it take incompetent human leaders for us to recognize that Jesus is king? What if Jesus was king, not as a last resort, but as a triumphant declaration over our days, over our lives, over our families, 
over our communities. Triumphant, hopeful truth that, that resounded over each and every day of our life. The disciples of Jesus, when you read through the Gospel of Mark, I just read through the whole thing again yesterday. It's so interesting how often they did the Gospel of Mark, the disciples never really get it in the entirety of the book. And though, they, though, though Peter declared Jesus as the Christ on eight um, on Mark 8, uh, verse 30, he didn't understand what it meant that he was, that he was the Son of God and that he came to, to, to suffer and die. And so as you listen to the apostles jockeying for a position in Mark's gospel, they're always trying to get, like, the benefits of knowing the king. Who's going to sit at your right? Who's going to sit at your left? Who's the greatest in your kingdom? And again and again and again, Jesus says, you're thinking about this thing all wrong. In my kingdom, it's not about who is greatest. It's about who is least. Because who is least in my, least in my kingdom will be greatest. And so as I was reading about that this week, I read, listened to this, this, this uh, commentary that I read. Within a culture that associated the coming of a Jewish king, descended from the line of David with military and political domination, Jesus was exceptionally wary of being misconstrued. With good reason, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus did not come to establish his rule through military power, but by giving his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. He, cha- he challenged his hearers to embrace his teaching of love toward his enemies. Even when the people greeted him as the son of David on his entering Jerusalem, Jesus rode a donkey and not a warrior's horse. And so Jesus, the first thing that Mark wants us to know is that he is king. He is king above all kings. This isn't an earthly kingdom. His is an eternal kingdom. This is the gospel of Jesus as king. And this is the truth that the world needs to know. The truth of Jesus Christ is the good news that those of us here and outside the walls of the church are desperate to know. If you go to the second thing, look at verses, kind of finish verse one and look at verse two here as, uh, as, as Mark kind of evolves his, his argument. He says, beginning in verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in, the, uh, in Isaiah the prophet, he quotes this Old Testament prophecy, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And so what Mark is telling us here is that Jesus, uh, this is the gospel not just of Jesus the king, but this is also the gospel of Jesus the Lord. He's not just king, he's also Lord. Look at verse 1, he, he calls him the son of God. And then in verse 3 uh, is, is, is this Isaiah prophecy is applying to John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for the Lord. So he's king and Lord. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as you look at Mark's gospel as a whole, he really goes out of his way to help us recognize that Jesus wasn't just an earthly king. He wasn't just a revolutionary. He wasn't just a military leader. He was this divine, this, 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 he was both king and Lord. And in fact, if you just go to verse 11 of our text today, as Jesus is coming up out of the waters of baptism, the heavens crack open, the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove, and the voice of God thunders down from heaven. And God says to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am pleased. And then as we skip ahead to chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, on this mountain of transfiguration where Peter and James and John go up to the top of this mountain with Jesus, and before their very eyes, he is transfigured into this glorious heavenly creature. And he's, he's, between, he's between Moses and Elijah. And is, is there a, witnessing this amazing event, heaven speaks again. And the Father says of Jesus, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. 
Mark wants us to know that, that, that Jesus isn't just king, but he's also God. He's also Lord. And then at the climactic moment of the entire gospel of Mark, in chapter 15, after Jesus has been nailed to a cross, as he's breathing out his last breath in, in verses 37, Jesus utters a loud cry. He breathes his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In verse 39, it says, there was a centurion there witnessing all of this take place. And he stood facing Jesus, and he saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last breath. And the centurion, the Roman who, who was a part of killing Jesus, was the first human being to confess rightly in Mark's gospel, truly, this was the Son of God. This is a big deal. Mark wants us to know that Jesus isn't just king, but he is Lord. He is the Son of God. And then as we look at verse 2, we see this Old Testament prophecy in the book of Isaiah and actually part of Malachi as well uh, being applied to John the Baptist. God was speaking through the prophet about John the Baptist when he said, Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, before your face. He'll prepare your way. He, John the Baptist, will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord and make his path straight. And so God's word is spoken through his prophets. And God is affirming through the prophet Isaiah that John the Baptist came before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Lord. Jesus is Lord. The one for whom John the Baptist is preparing the way, the one who will come after John is both Christ or King and the Son of God or Lord. And I think about what Peter said at Pentecost. After Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he's preaching at Pentecost in the streets of Jerusalem some 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter preaches as, as people are listening. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And after this comes these words that kind of tell us a little bit about the life of John, about what he did Beginning in verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. People from all over the region were coming out to be baptized. They were confessing their sins. And John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts with wild honey. One of the funniest uh, Halloween costumes my son ever did one year. He, he went uh, to Halloween as John the Baptist. <laughs> it was just so funny. He had this big giant coat and a belt. And he could kind of just walk around with these intense eyes. I don't think anybody knew who he was. But it's hard for me to think about Jesus, about John the Baptist, kind of this radical way that he chose to live for, for Jesus. He was called by God to prepare away a very unique calling. And, and, and imagine if you were to see a guy with camel hair and uh, a leather belt and eating honey and, and wild locusts, like, what a crazy dude. How strange must that look? When I was living in Milwaukee, I remember there was this guy that started coming to my church. His name was Sean. He was a homeless guy. He was about six foot three, probably weighed about 350 pounds. He had long blonde hair and a huge blonde beard. He looked like a Viking. His hair was in these big, huge dreadlocks. I didn't know anything about Sean. He was coming to my church, and I was having little short conversations with him, you know, a couple of Sundays back to back to back, and I wanted to get to know his story. You know, in my like, I'm just thinking, like, what went wrong in this dude's life? Like, why is he homeless? And I want to know where his pain is. Is he struggling with addiction? Does he have mental health issues? Why is, why is Sean living on the streets? And so I ended up meeting him at a little diner in our town. And I met with him, like, on a Tuesday morning or something. We sat down, and he was super smart, super articulate. He pulls out a Bible from his backpack that is just so worn and dog-eared and underlined, like he had lived in the Scripture. And I'm just trying to figure out what's wrong with him. Like, so what's wrong with you? Like, why are you 
why are you homeless? Like, why don't you have a job? Why don't you have a house in the suburbs? Why aren't you driving a couple cars? Why don't you have a college degree? Where's your wife and kids? Like, in my mind, I had so... I had so affiliated being in the center of God's will with living the American dream, I couldn't conceive that Sean might be in the center of God's will. There's no way some homeless dude in Milwaukee could be in the center of God's will. But as I talked with Sean, he made it very clear, I don't use substances. I don't have mental health issues. I have a powerful ministry on the streets of Milwaukee, so I live out here as a wild man with dreadlock hair, with camel. He was like John the Baptist on the streets of Milwaukee, and he had a powerful ministry. He was strange. But God was using him in a powerful way among these people who were living in some of the most difficult circumstances. It's crazy. And as I think about John the Baptist, this man who prepares a way for Jesus, he was baptizing people, calling them to repent, a baptism of repentance. Now, a repentance is simply put is a 180. If I'm journeying toward sin, repentance is to stop in my shoes, turn my back to sin, and go back towards righteousness. That's the visual picture of repentance. And John was telling people, repented. He was baptizing them. But the interesting thing was, baptism isn't a Christian concept. We think of baptism as identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We get baptized in Christian baptism. But baptism predates the Christian movement. In, in, in Israel, or among, among the Israelites, they had baptism for Gentile converts to, to the Jewish faith. And these Gentiles would be baptized as, a, as like a, a purification ceremony as they were converting to, to uh, Judaism. But what John the Baptist does is unique. He's saying to Jews, no, 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 no. It's not just the Gentiles who need to be cleansed. You, Jew, people of God, you need to be cleansed as well. And he's baptizing them in this amazing, calling them, saying, you need to be cleansed just like the worst of sinners. And it was a baptism of repentance. So these people were coming to John the Baptist. They were recognizing their their own sin. They they were were, uh, articulating a desire for spiritual cleansing. And he was preparing a way for the coming one. And so the third part of John's baptism was was a commitment to these, these people who were getting baptized were committing to following God's law as they anticipated the coming king. John said, there's one coming. Whose, whose sandal I'm not even worth, uh, worthy of un, unstrapping. John, John knew his role, knew his place was to, was to prepare the way for the coming king. Look at verses 7 and 8. He preached, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but this coming one, Jesus Christ, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is affirming that Jesus is both Lord and King. And to, and to undo someone's sandals was the lowliest of things. I mean, Jews thought they were above that, but John is saying, no, you think I'm a big deal? I'm, I'm a rock star <laughs> here in, in, in Judah? No, 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 no. I'm not even worthy to do the lowliest task that servants don't even want to do. I'm not even worthy to do that when it comes to Jesus. He's the one that needs to be exalted. Do you remember what John said in John, the Gospel of John about Jesus? John said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. John's baptism was with water, but a far greater baptism of Jesus was going to be with the Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament talked about this through the prophets, that the Messiah was going to bring this baptism of the Spirit. And so what John is saying, he's saying those who repent and trust in Jesus will receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Now, our huddle groups. Now, if you're going to be in a huddle group this year, and I'd strongly encourage you to get into a huddle group, we have a curriculum that's going to track with the gospel of Mark as we're preaching at your, your huddle group or your, or your men's group or your women's group is going to be studying Mark at a deeper level as we're, as we're unpacking it. And I want to read you something that's in our curriculum for this week when it comes to Jesus as Lord. Here's what it says. The gospel is the unfolding plan of God to redeem a broken world and make it the kingdom it was meant to be all along. 
And so the theme of Mark is reinforced by the fact that the word Lord is the most used word in the Bible. The word Lord occurs 7,759 times in the Scriptures. The loving and redeeming lordship of God over his kingdom is the most dominant theme in the Bible. It started at creation, was attacked by sin, but is being reestablished through the arrival of Jesus and will continue until the end of the age. It is the good news, the gospel, that we have been born again and have new and living hope through Jesus Christ. And so, he is Lord. That word Lord simply means he is supreme. He's to have authority. He is master of his church and of his people. It's not some stale, impersonal, angry, fist-pounding, authoritative, abusive dictator forcing an evil way upon you. No, this is a God who has made very clear his heart toward us. We don't have to wonder if God loves us. We look to the cross and we recognize the lengths through which our God will go to make sure that, he, that, that we might be forgiven, that we can turn our face to him and be known by him and know him. So we know that God's love for us is, 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 has no end. And so when we think about him being Lord, he's not some angry Lord who's, who's just pounding. His, he's, he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And so we, he's Lord of our life, inviting us into the abundant life he came to give us. The cross depicts God's love for us on full display. He is to be Lord of your life. Not just a king in a high place who can give you great benefits, but Lord of your life. He is to be our Lord and Master, which means he is to be Lord over everything in my life and everything in your life. So think about your life today. Think about your time, how you spend your time. Think about your money and your resources, and how you invest and spend your money and your resources. Think about the relationships, your dating relationships, your friendship relationships, your marriage, your relationships with your parents and your kids. Think about your vocation, the work that you do day in and day out. Think about, think about the recreation, the way you spend your downtime. What, what, what thoughts are going through your mind on a given day? Think about the decisions that you make, the ambitions of your heart, all of it. Jesus has to be Lord over all of it. So as we begin to assess, gosh, Lord, what do you want of me? How do I walk as you would have me walk? He's not a big, mean, angry father in heaven who wants to make our lives miserable. He loves us and he is for us. And so for us to submit to his lordship, for us to make him lord of our life, is God inviting us into life and to experience life in the fullest. This is such good news. This is the gospel of Jesus the King. This is the gospel of Jesus the Lord. The truth of Jesus is the good news that you and I need to hear today. And it's the good news the world needs. Lastly, last thing I would encourage you to write down is this is the gospel of Jesus the Savior. This is the gospel of Jesus the Savior. Look at verses 9 through 15. Here, here we're finally introduced to Jesus after all this preamble. In verse 9, we're finally introduced to Jesus. We're given some substance to the claims of the previous eight verses. And the very first thing we see is Jesus' baptism. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. How interesting. Look at this contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8, John tells us that, hey, John says, I baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's not symbolic, I hope. And then we see Jesus himself giving himself to baptism. 
this baptism of repentance. Isn't that interesting? Jesus comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what regenerates us. It brings new life. It's the power of God at work in the life of the believer. And yet we see this ironic thing that Jesus, King, and Jesus, Lord, goes out into the wilderness, wanders into the Jordan River to John the Baptist to be baptized in a baptism of repentance. If he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's without sin. So if Jesus is without sin, why is he submitting himself to a baptism of repentance? If he has no sin, he has nothing to repent of, right? So why is he doing this? Why is Jesus participating in an act that is exclusively reserved for sinners? Why is he taking on the role of a lowly pilgrim weighed down with sin? Could it be that Jesus was choosing baptism as a sign of repentance, not on his own behalf because he didn't need to repent because he's perfect, he's sinless, but could it be that Jesus is choosing baptism as a sign of repentance on behalf of the people of God of whom he is a substitute? Could this be the beginning of Jesus becoming sin that we might become the righteousness of God? Hordes of sinful Judeans and hordes of sinful Jerusalemites have been flocking to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And they're repenting and they're being baptized, but you know as well as I do because we've lived this game long enough, there's going to be sin around the next corner. There's going to be new sin for them to repent of. There's this struggle with sin that happens in the life of people. But not so with Jesus. He was without sin. And so as we imagine him entering the Jordan to meet John the Baptist, as I read this week, let us see him as the one true Israelite whose repentance is perfect. Much in the same way that we were introduced to John the Baptist, we begin to see some details of the life of Jesus over the next few verses. Verse 10 says that when he came out of the water, immediately the heavens opened up, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then we see right after the the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 13 says that he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. My wife and I, many years ago, went to Jerusalem on a a vacation. And as we were there, we went to the Jordan River, the traditional site where where, where people believe Jesus was baptized. And I remember on our way there, we drove, we kind of drive down the mountain by the Dead Sea, sort of, or north of the Dead Sea. And you drive past the ruins of Jericho. And I'm reminded of the the book of Joshua. Just as the people of God crossed the Jordan River, as God caused the waters to be stopped, they, they crossed the Jordan River, and the first place they go is Jericho, if you remember. And so as I'm down at this beautiful spot on the Jordan River, imagining the baptism of Jesus, and Jericho is just a stone's throw behind us, I'm realizing not only was Jesus baptized in these waters, this is the exact same place the Israelites would have crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And I'm just thinking about this. Why did God choose the same place? Why is Jesus being baptized in the same place where the people of God crossed the Jordan? And I'm realizing that there's all this... As you just study Scripture you begin to see all these images that take me back to different scenes in the Bible. I'm thinking about this, this picture of Jesus being baptized. Thinking about him in the water. Thinking about the Israelites passing through the Red Sea in the water. Thinking about them passing across the Jordan River. As the dove of the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, I'm mindful of Noah sending out a dove from the ark. And there's all these pictures of these people that came before Jesus who are sinful. The Israelites had God guiding them, but they just continued to turn their back, continued to turn their back, ultimately failed. Noah comes off the ark. This is hope of a new humanity, and within minutes we see him falling, failing miserably and sinning again. And then as we skip ahead and we see the temptation of Jesus, I'm reminded of, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God had, had given them everything they ever needed. He told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if they eat it, they'll die. And, and what do they do? 
They're tempted by Satan, and they fall prey to Satan, and they indulge, and they sin, and death enters humanity, and the human race falls. And so as I'm watching Jesus in the water with the dove, being tempted in the wilderness, overcoming the temptations of Satan, I'm realizing what he's doing. Jesus is, he's doing it with perfection. Where, where human servants failed, Jesus the King and Jesus the Lord, our sinless Savior, he didn't fail. Where, where human beings couldn't live up to the, the standard of perfection, Jesus here is ushering in a new creation and a new humanity. He's leading God's people into something that's far better than there has ever been. He is King, He is Lord, and He is Savior. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And then as we peek ahead to next week's text, verse 14 and 15, after John was arrested, it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God and he calls us to believe that he is both king and Lord and he is our savior. This is the truth of Jesus, which is the good news. It's the world we need, it's the word we need, and it's the, the word the world needs. And as I look at our lives today, as we gather as a church, it's kind of a new season for heritage, starting into our first fall together. And I, I think about the, the work that has been done here at Heritage over the last 10 or 12 months, preparing for this new season, this new day, this the series, the, the, the commitment to discipleship that we have put in place, the hard work that the staff and leaders have done at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And, and I'm not saying that heritage is the answer. We're, it's not, we're not exalting the name of Heritage Christian Fellowship. We want to exalt the name of Jesus. But I just think about where we are today as we sit in this place. It's madness in this world. As the political and world leaders around us routinely disappoint and fail, as they all do, isn't it good news to know that Jesus is king? He is king. His sovereign reign has no end. He's never asleep at the wheel. He's absolutely in control. I think about our lives, and I think about those around us, and I think about the poor decisions and the limited wisdom and the sin that has created havoc in our society and in our homes and in our churches and in our own lives. Isn't it good to know that Jesus is Lord and that he has a way and as we submit to him, he has a way for us that's beyond our wisdom. He knows more than we know, and he invites us into this abundant life. And as I think about the weaknesses of human limitation, I think about the, the apart from these truths, the hopelessness that exists within the world, the, the, the fear of death, how awesome to know that our God is a Savior, that he came to, to save and redeem us. He takes our sins upon himself. He has overcome that sin. He has overcome death. He invites us into relationship with himself that we might know him, be known by him, be saved. Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord and Jesus is savior. This is the truth of the good news. The world needs to know it. You and I need to know it. So we need to continue to live in the light of the good news. Again, heritage is not the answer to everything you've ever wanted or ever needed. We are just a local church trying to do everything we can to create a place where you can come on a weekly basis to center to the truth of God's word, to meet Jesus in the preaching of his word, to connect with one another, to exalt him with your heart and mind, to make, to make the gathering of the saints a priority in your life. We try to create space and place for you to connect in community with other believers where you can be sharpened and encouraged, where you can sharpen and encourage, where you can rebuke if you need to rebuke, where you can grow in the likeness of Jesus. And as the madness of the world gets worse every day, we have our eyes fixed on Jesus collectively and together as his church. 
It's a place where you can come and you can commit to, to, to living out the truth of the gospel, where Jesus becomes your king, and he becomes your Lord, and he becomes your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for the gospel of Mark. I'm so thankful for the opportunity, God, you have given us as a church to, to look at this book and not just entertain our minds, God, not just learn new things, but encounter you, this living God who is both King and Lord and who is our Savior. I am so thankful, God, that we, we, we in the midst of, of a world that, that is struggling and laboring and, and groaning, God, we have the hope that one day there will be a new creation. God, you will set all things right. God, that you have nailed our sins to the cross, that we have the hope of new life. And so, God, would you journey with us as a church as we journey through the gospel of Mark? May, may we meet you anew week in and week out. God, would you bless the, the, the huddle groups and the men's ministry groups and the women's ministry groups and the affinity groups? God, would you allow your people to meet in, in, in community with one another where they can sharpen one another and grow together as disciples of Jesus? And God, we pray that in this place that the name of Jesus would be exalted, that you would be glorified, and you'd have your way with us and have your way among us. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.